to uh, be back in Iowa. I want to take a minute and thank Dave for uh, bringing the word last Sunday. I hope that you were blessed, challenged, and encouraged by it. Uh, we had a great time with uh, Parker. He is studying his tail off, but having a great time at Davidson. Uh, we were able to see Kelly's sister and her husband and just enjoy some time in North Carolina. Uh, but it just, it just seems like it was like that. I mean, it was uh, Saturday to Tuesday, uh, kind of a whirlwind trip, but uh, good to go and, and uh, spend time with him. And now here we are. We're back uh, in church, and we are... Believe it or not, at the conclusion today of the book of Hebrews, we've been traveling through this book. I pray it's been encouraging you, but also challenging you um, in understanding its purpose. Where are we going after this? Well, there's a little hint in today's message. Uh, We are going to be talking about being strengthened by grace. And so in that, over the next couple of weeks after we go through Hebrews, we're going to be talking about resting in the grace of God. How do we do so? Why is that important? And why is that commanded of us biblically? And so I pray that that would be an encouragement to you. Uh, But this morning, before we conclude, I want to take a minute and I want to talk to you a little bit about and remind you the purpose behind the book of Hebrews. Because we're in this chapter. These last couple of verses are a series of exhortations. Essentially what they are is now that we have the foundation of what we've discovered, What do we do with that? How do we live our life? The purpose of those are to encourage us, but if we don't understand the foundation behind why those exhortations are there, they can become meaningless, they can become legalistic, they can become essentially dead because we don't know why or what they rest upon. So, we're gonna take a brief history lesson, we're gonna remind ourselves of why this book had been written. We need to remember that Christ had come, he had lived, he had died on the cross. Remember when he is on the cross and he gives up his spirit, he says it is finished. And the veil that separates essentially the Holy of Holies is torn and there is an earthquake. That's important to remember because in the book of Hebrews we're going to read that through Christ's death and resurrection from the grave, what it does is it no longer separates us from him and we can approach God with confidence because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. Christ comes, does this, rises from the grave. People see him and they begin to believe in him. But years go by And what is occurring is simultaneously now, individuals, particularly Jews of the day, had begun to place their faith and trust in Christ, but also the worship that was going on, the Old Testament system that was there, was still continuing. These individuals had placed their faith and trust in Christ, and in doing so, they were being essentially persecuted for their faith. Things were hard. Things were challenging. They were starting to say, hey, wait a minute, I signed up for Jesus, and I thought, as many preachers tell you, that it was a prosperity gospel. I thought that by signing up for Jesus, I was going to get what I want, how I want, and where I want it, times 10. And this isn't happening. And so what was occurring was these individuals were beginning to say, you know what, maybe it's better if we go back to what was. Maybe it's better if we go back to the Old Testament system. And so the author is writing to these individuals to encourage, remind, and exhort them that we have the best of the best in Jesus Christ. 
So for a series of several chapters, what he does is he says, let me remind you in a comparative way to demonstrate why Christ's sacrifice on the cross is a one and done, and when we place our faith and trust in him, we are wholly cleansed and pure and righteous before God. And so the author goes through a series of demonstrating the Old Testament sacrificial system, reminding people of several things. Number one, it reminds us that during the time that God was essentially in, um, in the temple or in the tabernacle, God dwelt among his people. But what we need to be reminded of is this. If we were not within the tribe of Israel, if we were not the Jewish nation, if we were Gentiles, which I'm going to assume all of us are here. Is anybody Jewish here? Okay, I don't see any hands raised. I'll put mine down. All right. Okay, here's what I'm going to tell you. We were excluded. We were not in the inner sanctum. We were not in the inner circle. And so what I want to remind you of today, and I'm going to kind of give you an example, is this. If that was the case, right now what would be going on is we would all be standing out in the parking lot, for lack of a better word, looking in on some building, wondering, you know, what's going on in there? What, what happens in there? Now, better yet, if we were fortunate enough to be included, you might be able to be, quote-unquote, included in what was happening. But we need to remember that the Holy of Holies was a place where God dwelt. And once a year, once a year, the high priest could go in and atone for the sins of the people by offering a blood sacrifice. We also need to remember, as we've said, that when that occurred... We would have this individual have a rope tied around him. He would have bells on his hand and on his feet. Because if for some reason he went into the Holy of Holies after having done what he had done, did, and he was unclean, we would have an Indiana Jones moment. Okay? You guys remember that? You remember me talking? You know, pull the rope, pull the rope, right? And the guy's not listening and we have problems. Now, all of this was to atone for the sins of the people. And everybody felt good, and everybody said, great, this is wonderful to do. But here's the problem. As we discover in Scripture, this was all just a bunch of pomp and circumstance. What we read in the book of Hebrews is that the sacrifice that was made, the atoning for the sins of the people, had the ability to cleanse on what? The outside, but not on the in. It had the ability to make you look good, but you are still guilty in your sin. And what I want to remind us of is year after year, after decade after decade, after century after century, this continued to happen. This was the means by which people were drawing close to God, asking him for forgiveness, but they were continuing to repeat the process. And over time, people began to wonder and say, is there something different? Now, of course there is. Christ comes, he lives, he dies. He dies on the cross as the perfect one and done sacrifice. And by placing our faith and trust in him, by grace, through faith, in Jesus, guess what? The entirety of the Old Testament systems of sacrifice is complete, done, and finished. And better yet, we're not just cleansed on the outside, 
We are cleansed on the inside. Our sins are forgiven, we are whole, and we are righteous before God. That's what was happening. But the problem was, was simultaneously, the Old Testament system continues to move forward. The people following Jesus are trusting in him, and things aren't going very well. And so they look and they begin to think, there's got to be more. Or maybe we need to go back to what was. Maybe the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ isn't enough. Maybe that's what we need to go back to. And so the entirety of the book, the author is saying, don't go back to what was. Christ is better than the prophets. Christ is better than Moses. Christ is the great high priest. And don't forget that. Remember how we talked about Christ being the great high priest and the uniqueness of Jesus? Because Jesus was the only one who could embody two things. He could only embody being king and priest. And that's what makes him unique. And that's why he is the great high priest. And so we go through that, and we're reminded of all of these things, saying, don't go back to what was. Why is that important for us today? We sit here this morning, and we say, well, of course, we're in, not in the Old Testament, we're in the New. But we have to remember what was so that we can appreciate what is. Friends, one of the things that I would encourage, and one of the things that I would say is, is we don't want to remove the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the foundation for what we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And essentially, when we look back to what had to be done, and we look forward to what we have in Jesus, that's what exalts us and exhorts us to move forward in faith with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're coming off of a chapter where the author has spent time saying, don't look to the kingdom that is. Don't look to the temple that is there, meaning physically, back in the time of when this was written. He reminds them, and he says, look, what we have in Jesus is an unshakable kingdom. I find it interesting. I find it ironic in some ways that we're at this point, and simultaneously right now what we see happening in Israel is in Israel. Now, I'm not a prophet, okay? Right? Don't, I'm not giving any prophetic word here or anything like that. But it's interesting to look and see what's transpiring in Israel. What I'm going to tell you is this. That is a focal point biblically. But may we be reminded that the true kingdom of God, the kingdom of which we possess when we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus, isn't here. It's his kingdom. It's the eternal one. And that kingdom will not be shaken. That's the foundation of what we are coming off of into chapter 13 with all of these exhortations. We have the best of the best in Jesus. We have an unshakable kingdom. We have an eternal inheritance of which we are guaranteed when we've placed our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so... With that, we're going to do the same thing that we did two weeks ago. It's just the same question because we're still in sort of the area of exhortation um, and essentially application of what the author is giving. 
But let me remind you of that question. Knowing that we have the best of the best in Christ and that we are part of an unshakable kingdom, how should we live? Because I I think it's interesting. It's one thing for the author to say, look, you have the best of the best in Christ and you you have an unshakable kingdom. But what he then does is he says, now knowing this, now recognizing this, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to move forward. And so these applicational pieces are foundational to what we have. The other thing that I want to encourage you in is this. How many of you, kind of like me, right, when you're reading your Bible, you go through and you're getting really close to the end, and you're like, I'm at the end, and you get excited, and you just kind of read through the verses, and you miss those last like seven or eight verses? There are some rich gems in here, in these last verses in the book of Hebrews. And one of them in particular I don't want you to miss, and we're going to see in a moment, on what we are to do with our life in Jesus Christ. So here's what we have. We've been talking about this, and the author essentially has been exhorting individuals, and he picks up and he says, now that we've seen these things, let me give you a few more aspects that we need to look at. In verse 7 he says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. Not ceremonial foods which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister are at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is yet or sorry, for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and share with others, for such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. May the God of peace, who, through the blood of the eternal covenant, brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be all glory and forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written you only a short letter. Only a short letter. It's pretty long, isn't it? But I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. Those from Italy send to you their greetings. Grace be with you. 
You know, as we look at this, there's some exhortations in here, and there are some things that I think are so important for us to see before we turn that page, before we move on to whatever might be next in our Bible reading. They are obvious in exhortation, but I think there are some implications that are so important for us to see. So the first thing, obviously, that we're going to look at is verse 7, and that is, is that we're to remember our leaders and imitate their faith in Christ. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Keith and I are your pastors. We have elders within the congregation. We're not perfect. I'm not saying that we are. But what I exhort you to do is, is to look to those who are in positions of leadership, to pray for them, to look to them, to imitate their faith, to see how they look and how they walk with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But also, one of the things that I think is important for you is to encourage you in your faith. Interesting enough, the author says, remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Maybe there's somebody in your walk with Jesus Christ that has had a significant impact. Maybe somebody spent some time with you to encourage you in the word, or maybe they spent time with you in a challenging moment. Can I exhort you today to take a moment and maybe remember that individual, and perhaps if they are still living, take some time this week just to give them a phone call and say, hey, thank you for what you have done. Thank you for how you've encouraged me in my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then it looks as, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. It's interesting because one of the things that I think is so important in our world is on a worldly level, we want to look at individuals who are quote-unquote powerful and successful, right? But yet, here, it doesn't say look to those who are powerful and successful. It says, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Some of the greatest leaders, some of the greatest biblical leaders, some of the greatest leaders of the church are individuals whose lives were quite challenging, whose lives were quite tumultuous, whose lives had tragedy, and yet they continued to trust in their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those are the people that you want to look to. Those are the individuals that you want to look at. Friends, one of the things that I find so intriguing in my life is when I look to individuals, particularly in the congregation, that I know have gone through a challenging time or are going through a challenging time. And when I look to them and I see them walking with Jesus, that is an encouragement to me. Because I look and I recognize their trust and their faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, the other thing that I want to encourage you in is, for whatever reason, God puts leaders in your life to move you forward, to move the church forward. And so the other thing that I would ask is to pray for us. We are not perfect. We're far from it. But our hearts and our desires are to lead the church in a direction that exalts our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and brings glory and honor to his name. And so lovingly, what I want to ask is this. Are you praying for us? Not in a, not in a mean way. This isn't a, a jab or anything like that. But would you be willing to include us in your time of prayer with Jesus Christ? That we would have wisdom, that we would have discernment, that we would be pleasing and honoring to God. That we would do what is right to the best of our ability to bring glory and honor to his name, realizing that we're not always going to get it right, but we're going to do what we can to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. It continues on, and I love this verse. We could probably preach an entire sermon series on this verse, which is this, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Now here it's a reminder of the fact that Christ does not change, but it's also a reminder of his deity. It is a reminder that he has eternally existed. It's a reminder to the people that Christ didn't come on the scene when he was born, and Christ didn't leave the scene when he died, but Christ is a part of the doctrine of the Trinity. He has eternally existed. He is God in the flesh. But also, this should bring comfort and joy to our heart. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's interesting that that verse comes off of the following. Right? It almost seems like it kind of hangs in there. But one of the things that I think is important is our ultimate leader, the true leader of the church, is not me. It's Jesus. It's our Lord. He is the one who leads this church. He is the one who guides and directs this church. And the other thing that I think is so comforting in this is that he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jokingly, seriously, and I'm kind of taking a deep breath because we are coming up on an election year. Woof. Isn't it comforting to know that we have a leader whose kingdom is unshakable and he is the same yesterday, today, and forever and his political platform will not change due to popularity of the vote? Now, it's an analogy. I'm not going to bring politics per se into the pulpit, but it is important to recognize where we hang our hat. It's on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what you have, you've had. And what you have had, you will have. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. A couple of things that I want to encourage you in. May that strengthen your faith. But also what I want to encourage you in is be wise in your faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing new in Jesus, okay? We kind of look at that and I'm like, oh gosh, you know, there's nothing new in Jesus. Well, wait a minute, wait. Like, we need something new. We need a new, we need a new phone. We need a, you know, a, a, you know phone 2.0 or what are, what are we on now with the iPhone? Like 15 or something like that, right? There's no Jesus iPhone 15, I think. Is that right? Am I right there? Is it 15? Holy cow. Okay, I was, I was okay. And there will be a 16 and there will probably be a 17 and, you know, Depending upon how long it takes Jesus to return, there might be a 400. I don't know. But there's no changing in Christ. That's what's being stated by this author. There's no new discovery in Jesus. There's nothing that a church should come forward and say, you know what? We've been doing it wrong and we've found this new way or this new aspect on how to worship Jesus. There's no new angle because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so brothers and sisters in Christ, one of the things that I want you to be encouraged in, but one of the things that I also want to exhort you in is doctrine, theology, the foundations of the faith, the creeds of the churches, those things are important to look at and to understand because they are what embody who Christ is. And too often what we want to do is find something new. We want to find a new angle 
We want to find a new thing that nobody else has discovered before so that we can get sort of a, a, a cap on the market. One of the things that I would encourage you in is this. If somebody starts changing who Jesus is, if they come forward and they say, you know, I've been doing some reading and I've been studying, and what I want to tell you is I've discovered that Jesus really is this, or there's this new part to him, or there's this undiscovered thing that we've now recognized with Jesus, and there's a deeper aspect to him and a deeper way to know him, and there's this secretive way or this new thing that you need to do, and that is truly how you get Jesus. What I'm going to lovingly tell you is look at them, smile, and run. There is nothing that is needed. And one of the things that's important is what's going to follow in the next couple of verses. Because it's foundationally coming off of the leadership. It is making the foundation to the claim of who Christ is. But then watch this, okay? In verses 9 through 12, the author is making a significant point, and that is this, that we are to be strengthened by grace because we have been sanctified through the blood of Christ. The author continues on, and he says, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Can I just throw this out there? There are a lot of strange teachings out there today. There are a lot of things that are being stated about, quote unquote, religion or the church or about Jesus that simply are not biblical. Do not be carried away by strange teachings. And watch what goes on here. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to mark that. This is one of those, those verses that as you're reading the, 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 kind of the remainder of Hebrews, you might skip over it. But this is a gem. This verse here basically is stated because of the foundation that has been laid through the entirety of the book. It is good to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods which are of no value to those who eat them. Why is that important? Friends, Intuitively, within our heart, it is hard for us to rest in the grace of God, the unmerited favor of Jesus. I am going to die on a cross for you, sinner who does not want me, who does not deserve me, and in doing so, I'm going to give you eternal life an inheritance in the kingdom where you will have a right standing before God, but you will also have the kingdom to which you will live throughout eternity forever that will not be shaken. And you don't deserve it. And Jesus does that for you and for me. And he dies on the cross so that when we place our faith and trust in him, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Nothing more. We don't have to do anything more. But intuitively, 
we think there's got to be something more to my salvation. There's got to be something else that I have to do to make myself approvable to God. I must add something to what Jesus has done so that I can validate the fact that I indeed am his. And so what we see in scripture are all of these aspects where they say, well, you know what? In order to be a real follower of Jesus, you should start doing ceremonial foods, i.e. the example that's in Hebrews. We see the argument in Galatians, which comes off of the argument that was being had of, hey, in order to be a true follower of Jesus, forgive me men, but you must be circumcised. You've got to add to it. That's what makes you a follower of Jesus Christ. Something more. And the author is saying, look, what makes you a follower of Jesus Christ is your faith and trust in him, the grace of which you've been given. And so may you be strengthened in that. May that draw you to him. And so as we look at this, right, rather than doing something more, rather than saying ceremonial food, right, rather than saying, you know what, in order for me to be a follower of Jesus, I'm going to do more. All of those things are good, but we do it because we love Jesus, not to be affirmed by him. And so here's what I want to encourage you in. When you feel like you are not enough, when you feel like God doesn't love you, when you wonder where your life is going, when you look around and say, must I do more? Rather than sitting there and going in this aspect for a ceremonial food, be strengthened by his grace. Rest in his grace. Lord, I am yours because you have died for me. I have placed my faith and trust in you, and that is enough. And I am trusting that while I don't deserve this, it is wholly mine because you have given to this to me in, in, in its entirety. And here's what's interesting about that. The more that you look and you think, you know what, God, I don't deserve this. I, I do not deserve at all to be yours in your kingdom with all the rights and privileges that you have done for how I've lived my life, how I've acted against you prior to knowing you. And yet you lovingly come forward and die on a cross on my behalf so that I can have life through you simply by saying, Lord, I trust in you and you alone. And not only do you save me, but you wrap your arms around me and I am yours and I am part of your kingdom. I get it all. All because of your grace. And it's because of that grace, it's because of the unmerited favor that I want to live my life in a manner that's pleasing and honoring for you. And you know what, God? Thank you that when I do and when I mess up, nobody messes up around here, right? When I mess up, it's not three strikes and you're out. You can go to God and you can say, Lord, forgive me, I 
have sinned or I am not living in the manner that you want and I am restored, I am yours, and you are mine because of your grace. Grace is new each and every morning. It's not salvation, okay, please hear me. I'm not saying that like every day you got to get up and say, Jesus, please save me. And okay, well, once, once you know Christ, you are his. But the grace of God, the grace is given each and every single day. May you be strengthened by that. May that be what draws your heart to worship him. May that be what brings you joy to him. May that be why you come and sit in these seats on Sunday. May that be why you do whatever it is you do for this church or I would say Christ's church. We're just a part of a big cog in a wheel. The grace of Jesus And when the world comes and tells you there's got to be more, when your friends tell you there's got to be more, when the enemy whispers in your ear and says, there has to be more, how could you be saved in Jesus? May you be strengthened by the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the whole purpose behind this. Because everybody in this book is saying, there's got to be more. Or we need to go back to what was. It can't be that we can just place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There's an altar over there. They're still sacrificing over there. They're still doing those things. Things aren't going well for us. Maybe we need to go back and do more. Sure, I'll trust in Jesus, but I better go over and make my sacrifice just to be safe. Because it's happening. And the author is saying, no. Now friends, what I'll tell you right now is, is the temple is there, but the temple is not functioning. But what sacrifices in your life are you trying to make? thinking that in so you will be more approvable to God? What additions are you adding to your salvation that you don't have to do? How are you not resting in the grace of God? Because the world wants to tell you there's got to be more, there has to be more, and the enemy is right behind the world whispering and saying, it has to be bigger than that. Now the other thing that I want to encourage you in this is don't pervert the grace of God. Don't take the grace of God and say, oh great, you know, I'm saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, therefore I'll just do whatever I want, right? Paul's very clear in that. We've said it before. Don't pervert God's grace. Paul says, essentially, should we continue in sin so that grace may increase? And what does he follow up with? By no means. Absolutely not. But when the heart of grace is received and who we are in Jesus Christ, that grace motivates our hearts to want to live for him and to be pleasing and honoring to him because of the grace of which we have received. He continues on and he says this, we have an altar, okay, don't miss this, we have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Okay, why is that there? It's kind of weird, isn't it? Like You're like, wait a minute, we have an altar and such a... Remember that when this is being written, 
to the people who are receiving the letter, the sacrificial system is still taking place. Okay? Even though Christ has lived, he has died, he has risen from the grave, they're looking over, people are remembering, and they're saying, well, you know, essentially, the Jews who have not believed in Christ, what they're doing to the Christians is saying, where's your altar? Where's your altar? Right? We've got one. Where's yours? And so what the author is saying is, look, don't be fooled. We don't have that altar. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Why? Because they haven't placed their faith and trust in the living God. They have not come to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They are still looking for a worldly means to atone for their sin not the savior of mankind. Now that continues on, he says, the high priest carries the blood of animals to the most holy place as a sin offering, but bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the camp. Think through this for a minute, okay? A sacrificial animal was brought into the temple or the tabernacle, and it was sacrificed in the internal aspect Christ died outside of the city. He was excluded from that city, for lack of a better word. Why? To make the people holy through his own blood. If you have your Bibles, I would circle that as well. He died outside of the camp, scorning his shame, right? Being ridiculed by all to make us holy. Remember back that all of the sacrificial system was a bunch of pomp and circumstance, and what we've read is is it makes you look good on the outside, but it had the inability to cleanse you from within. But Christ died outside of the gate, and the purpose is to make the people holy. Separated, pure, righteous, just, cleansed, claimed. And how did he do it? Through the blood of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the things that I think is so important for us to remember when we look at Easter, right, is, and I'm not belittling the suffering of Christ, but to be reminded that as the blood of Christ is shed, it is a one and done thing. Remember that what was going on once is wholly accomplished 100% and pure. Remember that what was happening was for years, for centuries, the animals were being sacrificed. And the bloodletting of the animal was supposedly to atone for the sins of the people. But all that did, all that was, was to remind us of the inability of that system and our desperate need for a savior who is Jesus Christ. It reminded us of our sin. And so Christ comes and dies and through the shedding of his blood, 
We are made holy. And we look at that, and to be honest with you at times, we can take that for granted because we have not lived through the centuries where this was being done in vain through the Old Testament system. I, 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 let, me, let me put it this way, okay? What if, okay, for, for let's just say three years, we came and we worshiped every Sunday, okay? Every single Sunday. And we did our thing and we sang our songs and we worshiped and we worshiped. And every Sunday, I kind of looked at you and I was like, yeah, okay, that's fine. But what I got to tell you is, is we've done this and yeah, we're doing the best that we can, but we're, we're not really cleansed. We're not, we're not whole before God, okay? Just, let's just take three years. But then all of a sudden, the Sunday following was the Sunday that we come and I was able to say to you, you know what? We are now cleansed. We are whole before God because Jesus died on the cross for us. Do you see the difference? Do you see how that exalts us to worship? We no longer have to just systematically go through things in vain. The author continues on and he says, let us go to him outside the camp bearing the disgrace he bore. And so in verses 13 and 14, what I want to encourage you in and exhort you in is this. When we undergo suffering and hardship, we are to go to Christ and seek the city that is to come. Let us then go to him outside the camp. Bearing the disgrace he bore. Can I ask a question? Are we willing to go to Christ outside the camp and bear the disgrace that he bore? If that's what God calls us to do? Or do we just want Jesus to give us a good life? To make things happen the way that we want? Are we willing to suffer? Are we willing to bear the disgrace that Christ bore because he is our king? And what I love is the author follows up in verse 14. For here, we do not have an enduring city. Meaning, in this world, we do not have an enduring city but we are looking for the city that is to come. Remember, this is coming off of chapter 12, the unshakable kingdom. So two things for you, friends and brothers and sisters in Christ. When we're following Jesus, I want to ask you, are you willing to suffer for Christ? As you grow in Christ, I lovingly ask you, are your eyes turning more to eternity rather than to the world? As you follow Jesus, is your heart looking more to him and to his kingdom rather than you and your own life? Are your eyes gazing heaven, uh, toward heaven rather than toward the world? There's a trajectory that should change. There's a life that should be transformed. There is a direction that we are called to go and it is not to pursue the world, but it is to pursue Christ and his kingdom. 
And so, when the author exhorts, let us then, go to him outside the camp. Not back to what was, but to what is. And bear the disgrace that he bore. That is an exhortation and an exaltation to those who are suffering. Right there, that is the key to the entire book. You are suffering for Jesus. It is hard. You are living a life that maybe after placing your faith and trust in him isn't what you want. But let us go to him outside the camp and bear what? The disgrace that he bore for the exaltation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Why? Because we don't have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Anybody, um, every once in a while, just kind of think about your first breath in God's kingdom? Anybody get excited about that? Yeah, right? I hope so. I pray so. Because one of the things that I want to remind you is, is this. Every breath that you breathe here is decreasing to the moment that you will breathe your first breath in heaven, which will forever increase. We just got a short time here in the vastness of eternity. And so lovingly, what I want to ask you is this. Are your eyes gazing toward the kingdom of God? Are your eyes gazing toward our Savior? And if so, in that, are you willing to bear the disgrace that might come of being a follower of Jesus Christ, knowing what you have been given in following him? Friends, one of the things I want to tell you and one of the things that I want to just encourage you in is, is again, you know, Keith mentioned it, um, what we know right now with Israel is, is that obviously there is a lot of violence, a lot of challenge. Um, there is a lot of difficulty. But what I also want to let you know is those who are following Jesus right now, those who are professing Christians, aren't able to sit like we are sitting and worship Jesus in spirit and truth. They are afraid for their lives. Now, Theologically speaking, this might be the movement toward the end times. This might be, well, we're always moving toward the end, okay? I, I don't know. Keith said it very well, okay? I don't know if this is like the start of. It might just be a blip on the radar, but we are moving in that direction. But one of the things that I want to ask you is this. If you are there, if all of a sudden your life is turned upside down because you follow Jesus, would you be willing to continue to go outside the camp bearing the disgrace that he bore? Would you essentially be willing to go to your cross? Would you be willing to be mocked, spat upon, crucified, for lack of a better word, to exalt our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ because of the grace that you've been given, because Christ is the best of the best? Or would you, like these individuals, say, you know what, I've come to Jesus, it's hard, it's not going well, so I'm going to go back to what was. I'm going to go to something different. There needs to be more. 
And then interesting enough, the author continues on in verses 15 and 16, and it says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of what? Not material. Not, not a goat. Not something materialistic. A sacrifice of praise. Isn't that interesting? A sacrifice of praise. How do you praise God with a sacrifice? You praise God with a sacrifice when things are hard. Father, I praise you. Not my will be done, but thy will be done. Father, I exalt you. Come what may. I praise your name because of who I am in your kingdom, not because what I have or do not have in this one. The fruit of lips that confess his name. And do not forget to do good and share with others for which such sacrifice God is pleased. Friends, in verses 16, 15 and 16, when we continue to offer a sacrifice of praise, we know that these are pleasing to God. What pleases God is our heart for him, come what may. What pleases God is the fact that we continue to trust in him, come what may. What pleases God is that we continue to worship Jesus Christ, come what may. What pleases God is that we continue to exalt Jesus, even when our lives aren't going in the direction that we think they should. And then interestingly enough, the author continues on in verses 17 through 19, and he kind of says another aspect. He says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then he says, pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and desire to give and live honorably in every way. A little different than remembering the leaders. This is to obey them. Okay? This is to, to pray for them. This is to exalt them. And when the leaders of, of, the, of the church come forward and say, hey, this is what needs to occur. This is what we're encouraging you to do that we would look at obedience in that, that we would want to be willing in obeying those that are in positions of authority over us. Recognize that we have a responsibility. Our job is to keep watch over the flock. And honestly, when I stand before God, I'm going to have to give an account. And every day I pray that I can say to the Lord, Lord, I did the best I could to honor you and to lead the sheep in the best way possible. Not perfect, but in a manner that drew them closer to you, to their heart for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And interesting enough, we continue on and we get into these last couple of verses. In verses 20 uh, through 25, what I want to encourage you um, is in this. We're to remember that through Christ we are bound to a God of peace and an internal shepherd. I want to take it just a couple seconds. I wish I could, I could do more, but it says, May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. A few things. 
We have a God of peace. A peace that passes all understanding. But we also have a great shepherd. It's interesting. This is the first time in the book that the author mentions that Jesus is a great shepherd. He's mentioned that he's the great high priest. He's proven that he is the best of the best. But he also proves that he is a shepherd to those who follow. A shepherd who gently leads the sheep so that they will not go astray. And so lovingly, what I want to ask you in this is have you put yourself under the leadership of the great shepherd? And if so, may he equip you with everything good for doing, don't miss this, your own will, right? What you want, how you, no, doing his will. May he equip you for doing his will. And so lovingly, I challenge you again. When you say, thy will be done, right? Not my will be done, thy will be done. Do you mean it? Do you go to God and do you say, Lord, work in my life to draw me closer to you so that in so doing, your will may be done through me? Whatever that might be. And may the work in us, may work in us doing what is pleasing to him. May he work in us doing what is pleasing to him. Are you asking God to work in you so that you are pleasing to God? Remembering and recognizing that all of that is done through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then interestingly enough, we have this final kind of spot where he says, brothers, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation for I have written you only a short letter. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. That's a great joy for them. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to see you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people, those from Italy, who send you their greetings. Most likely, people would say that this uh, letter was being uh, written to the Jews in and around Rome. Um, other uh, scholars would say that this was essentially just talking about the Italian people. Um, but there is an aspect in which Paul um, and Timothy and the writer of Hebrews are wanting to exhort those who are Italian believers. And then interestingly enough, it says, grace be with you all. Can I, can I make a comment on this? Grace be with you all, right? It's a, it's a conclusion, right? Who is the God of Grace. Our Savior Jesus. So it is a conclusion, but it's also an exhortation. May the God of grace be with you all. We have the best of the best in Jesus Christ. Stay true to him. Do not turn away because you have an unshakable kingdom. May you be strengthened in the grace of Jesus and may the grace of God continue to be with you all. Take home truth again is the same that I've had before. Because we have the best of the best in Christ and we are part of an unshakable kingdom, may we live lives that reflect Christ, knowing that he is with us always, even in times of trouble. Let's pray. 
Father, we come before you and we just thank you for the author of Hebrews. Father, we thank you for the aspect of how he displays the greatness of Christ, the superiority of Jesus. But Lord, I also pray that as we look back and we examine what was in the Old Testament, that we would realize it was there to remind us of our sin and need for a Savior. Father, I pray that in that too we would see truly how great Christ is in the one and done aspect that Christ died on the cross to forgive us of our sins. Father, I would pray and I would ask too that we would be reminded that we are saved by grace through faith. And so in that, Lord, when we are following Christ and things might be hard and we're wondering if there has to be more or if we need to do more in our faith, that, Lord, we wouldn't be wooed by different doctrines or different teachings, but we would be strengthened by the grace of our Savior Jesus Christ. May we rest in the grace that is ours through Jesus. We do love you. We pray these things in your name, dear Jesus. And we ask it all by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And all God's people say, amen.